Welcome to Living Water Anglican Church in Albany, Western Australia. We hope you enjoy this week's sermon. Well, indeed, back in the middle 1980s, Tina Turner did have a hit called What's Love Got to Do With It, as Chelsea has alluded to. How many of you can remember when that song came out? Be careful, you're going to date yourself on this if you can... If you remember that, I remember when that song came out, and I remember not being particularly happy with it or thrilled with it because I was a Christian at the time, and I thought, that's not a very godly understanding of love. And so I had some friends who were crazy about Tina Turner, and that song was, ah, I didn't really like it because Tina Turner sings that love is just a secondhand emotion or it's a sweet old fashioned notion. Who needs a heart when a heart can be broken? If you know anything about Tina Turner, she had a very tumultuous and abusive relationship with her husband, Ike, for a number of years. And so she's singing about a relationship which was physical, it was emotional, it was filled with desire, and a, but a lot of hurt and pain as well. But believe me, what she's singing about is not love. So what does love have to do with it, with relationships? Well, according to Tina Turner, Nothing. And interestingly, some Christians in the late first century were tempted to conclude the same thing. You see, there's a province in what is now western Turkey, which at the time was called Asia. It was literally the wealthiest province in the entire Roman Empire. It had its capital at Ephesus, and we know about it because Paul wrote a letter to the church in, in Ephesus, at Ephesians, which we call Ephesians. Matter of fact, the church was founded in that region by Paul on one of his missionary journeys in the early to mid-50s. And the church in all, throughout that region of Asia was growing. But towards the end of the first century, about 40 years later, some heresy had crept in. And, and as you can imagine, they didn't have the New Testament yet. They didn't have the Bible as we have it. They had the Old Testament, but not the New Testament. They likely had some of the apostolic writings, which had been passed around in some sort of circulation. But they mainly had the words of the apostles which were, and the teachings which were handed down by word of mouth. And as you can imagine, it's hard to have some, some standard against which to, to measure what the, any new teaching that comes along. And so there were some new teachings that came along, and some of them were heretical. And the Apostle John, who was the former disciple John, who walked and talked with Jesus uh, for three years, he wrote the letter of 1 John to refute uh, these false teachings and to reassure, to encourage, and to instruct the faithful there in the province of Asia. Now the heresy that John is addressing and dealing with is Gnosticism. And without going into some detail, it would be a lot of fun because Gnosticism is a very interesting heresy in the first century and it's alive and well today. But Gnostics taught that God did not come in the flesh in Jesus Christ. Jesus only appeared to be human. He wasn't really human. He wasn't really in the flesh because the flesh is evil. But, but somehow this, this, this person who appeared to be God pointed the way back to God. But the important thing for us today is that because Jesus wasn't God in the flesh, love and our moral behavior just isn't really that important. It's just not important. But John, on the other hand, reassures us. He says there's nothing more important than love. Matter of fact, he says the man Jesus was God in the flesh. He goes, I know. If you look at verse 1 and 2 of chapter 1, it says, I know because I personally saw him. I witnessed Jesus as the word of life. I touched, I had fellowship with him. And when you have fellowship with Jesus, that's fellowship with God, he says in verse 3. And so John says, what is the evidence that we know God? How do we know that we know God? When we keep his commands, when we're like, when we're like Jesus. And what is the primary command? To love as God loves, because God is love. See, the Gnostics, 
They ignored the idea and practice of love. They said it's irrelevant. It doesn't matter. Love for the Gnostics literally, as Tina Turner said, had nothing to do with it. But for John, John said love had everything to do with it. Matter of fact, that's his primary instruction. That's his, he says love is at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. That's his whole theme of the verses that Karen just read. Matter of fact, in this, in this section alone, 27 times John uses the word love or some form of that. Matter of fact, in the sermon this morning, I said 21 times, and I was standing at the back door after the service, and somebody came up and corrected me and said, you're not right. Uh, correct about so I stand corrected. 27 times in that passage, John uses uh, the word love, some derivative of the word love. And so we're going to look at this passage briefly and extract four key points that we see here that illustrate this and teach us about this, this idea of love. And the first one we see is straight out of the box is that God is love. John says it twice. He says it in verse 8 and in verse 16. God is love. Now we're going to talk a little bit more about this next week as well. But this is a signature theme. It's just it doesn't get any more, more specific than that. Who, what is God like? Who is God? God literally is love. That's the way John defines God. Now this doesn't mean that love is, is something that, which God does. It's not such simply an action which God does. It means that love is the very essence of who God is. Everything God does is done through love. It's done because of love. It's done in love because God is love. Some people actually claim that the Old Testament God is a God of holiness. You may have heard that before. Well, the Old Testament God, God is a God of holiness. And the New Testament, that's where we see God as a God of love, but they're not the same. And for this reason, some people just reject Christianity because they say, well, you have, you have an inconsistent God. He's holy in the Old Testament. He's love in the New Testament. And the two don't go together. But that's not true. Those who claim that ignore the evidence. Matter of fact, the Old Testament emphasizes, yes, it does emphasize holiness, but never holiness isolated from love. When God judges, he does it in love. When, and when God loves, he does it in righteousness and justice. When God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses, he did it in love. He did it because he loved the Israelites. He loved them and cared for them. God has never done anything that has not been from love. Matter of fact, if you get out your concordance and you look for all the listings of love, you'll see that the book of Psalms, which is in the Old Testament, mentions love more than any other biblical book. So it's simply not true that the Old Testament God is only a God of holiness. God is, God is a loving God in the Old Testament as well. And so in our passage today in First in John, John is writing in Koine Greek, and the words he uses for love here are agape, which, or the, which is the noun form, or agapeo, which is the verb form, verb form, which, and you may have heard those before, that they're a reference to God's love, but it's, it's not just God's love, it's, it's a specifically, it's a self-giving love. It's an unmerited love. It's a love given to those, to the recipients, regardless of their worth, even to their enemies. God gives love, that love to the undeserving. It's always seeking the highest good of the other. It's not about the self, it's not about me, me or if I'm giving love, it's always about the other. And this contrasts significantly with the, the love on the other extreme in the Greek word, which is eros. Now, it's normally what we think of as erotic or sexual love, but it's way more than that. It has to do with possessive love. It's, eros is controlling love. It's loving only that which is worthy of my love, whereas, whereas agape is loving that which is unworthy of my love, regardless of the worth of the other. C.S. Lewis, in his, his great book, The Four Loves, helpfully uh, clarifies this for us and he, he, he describes these two contrasting loves. He says God's love, he says God's love is gift love. It's gift love because it's about the other. But human love, 
Human love is need love because it's always about me. It's a great understanding. God's love is gift love because it's about the other. Human love is need love because it's about me. And so when we love like God, as God calls us to love and, and imitation of God, then it's never about me. It's always about the other. And so God is love, by, when John says it, it's, a, it's literally a compressed statement of the gospel. It's the gospel in a nutshell. If you want to share some of the gospel with somebody, just God is love. That is the, now obviously there are many implications of that, but that is the gospel in a nutshell. Everything else, all the details of the gospel, the incarnation, Jesus' ministry, crucifixion, the resurrection, all the, they all flow out of this one statement. They're all implications of this one confession. That God is love. Matter of fact, the empty cross is the best symbol. It's the ultimate symbol that God is love. But we need to be careful about this. We can't flip it and reverse it. Love is not God. Matter of fact, John also in the, earlier in this in his book, letter of 1 John, he declares also that God is light. And we can't flip that either. Light is not God. So in the same way, if we say love is God, it turns love itself into God. Then it means that if we love, then somehow we automatically know God. And unfortunately, that's what theological liberals do and religious pluralists. They claim that if we just love each other, then we'll somehow we'll know God and everything will be okay. But unfortunately, that's to really sentimentalize the idea of love. And it ignores the, the sacrificial and the moral implications. One of the best and tr most tragic il illustrations of this that I can think of is that back in 1967, the Beatles recorded a song called All You Need Is Love. It's written by John Lennon. Um, and in that song, if you look at the lyrics, they really do make turn love into a god. It's like all you need is if we just love everybody, then everything will be okay. The tragedy behind it is that even at the time in 1967 when the song came out, they were already squabbling with one another. And within the three years, they were so angry and mad at each other that they broke up because they couldn't stand each other. Not very, not, not very good testimony for someone who a group that claims that all you need is love. But the second illustration, or the second key from this verse, or these verses, is that in His gift love, in this self-giving love that God has for us, God sent Jesus to die for us, and we see this in verses nine and ten. That God loves us just as we are, even in our unworthy, even in our sinful state. God loves us just as we are. There's no need to for us to clean ourselves up in order to come to God or so that God will accept us. Matter of fact, we can't even do that. Um, it's not possible because God is the one who cleans us up. God is the one who, who, who forgives our sin and, and makes us clean and whole. And so the love, the love that God demonstrates supremely in the death, atonement of, the death and the atonement of Jesus Christ on our behalf, that's where the supreme testimony and the example of this gift love is, God's love for us. But it raises an interesting question. What about if, if, if God's love in the crucifixion is so key, what about the incarnation? In other words, am I saying that Easter is more important than Christmas? How many of you have ever wondered that or had your kids ask that? What's more important, Christmas or Easter? Well, actually, it's a very interesting question because the incarnation, it clearly demonstrates God's solidarity with us, that God is with us. But actually, it's not. It, God identifies with us in, in the incarnation, but it's not the supreme love in its fullest. Because solidarity, without redemption, without ransom from sin, the incarnation without the crucifixion, that's not really the ultimate expression of love. Incarnation is God's love, but it's, but it's the incarnation and crucifixion together which is the ultimate expression of God's love. And God, John expresses this in verse 14 when he says, the Father has sent the, his Son to be the Savior of the world. 
It's a fantastic, pithy statement. The Father has sent the son, his Son to be the Savior of the world. In a sense, it's a recap uh, of John 3.16, for God sent his one and only Son to be saved, you know, and whosoever believes in him shall not perish. It's the essence of the gospel. In one sentence, the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. It's a wonderful statement. And so the Father sending Jesus to die for us, it's the chief test of orthodox theology. You know, is your theology orthodox? Do you believe that God sent his son in the flesh to die for man, to die for us, for humankind? That's the primary test of orthodox theology. It's also the supreme evidence of God's love for us. And, importantly for us, it's the supreme inspiration for our love for others. In other words, God's love for us in Christ obligates us to love one another in a way which resembles his love for us. So we're to love as God loves us. And that's what John is saying in this passage. And that takes us to the third key, which is love one another. Matter of fact, three times in this short passage, in verse 7, verse 13, and verse 21, John says we must love one another. And this love for one another is grounded in love as God's eternal nature. But to be honest, that's a little abstract, and sometimes it's hard for us to get our head around. But it's also grounded in God's gift of love to us in Jesus Christ. So we know what this love is and we can imitate that because we've seen it in the picture we have of Jesus Christ. So God's love for us and our love for God and others, they're actually inseparable. They're not two, different, two distinct things, they're inseparable. And how, John says, how do we know? How do we know that we know? How do we know that we know that we know God, that we're in God, that we have eternal life? Because first and foremost, we believe in Jesus as the Christ. We keep his commands and because we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's how we know. And John proclaims that this loving others, that love is the, a cardinal test of eternal life. It's whether we possess it or not. That's why he basically says, if you don't love others, you can talk all you want about, about, about loving Christ and about be, being saved, but you're not really because the, the chief demonstration of that, the test of that, is do you love others? Now, it's not your love that saves you, but that love is the test or the example of the love you have for God. And he says, God is love. Again, all love comes from God. He's saying a loveless person does not, know, does not know God and doesn't have life. So someday in eternity, you know, but when we stand before the judgment seat of God, Jesus may ask us, and this comes from an evangelistic tool that I learned way back in college, but you may have heard of it. He says, Jesus says, well, why should I let you into my heaven? And if you say, well, because I believed in you, Jesus. Jesus may well respond, yeah, but did you love others? Did you love others? Because that's a key test. John says that's a key test of whether our faith was real or not. And it's key evidence. And so John says, let us love one another for love is of God. As children of God, God's calling us to reproduce our Father's nature, reproduce that love. And when we do, we're giving proof that we are God's children and that we really know him. Those who don't love one another give proof that they are not God's children. Matter of fact, John gets pretty stark about that, and he, calls, he says that you have the spirit of the Antichrist. I mean, we don't want to go around saying, Antichrist, Antichrist. That's not what I'm saying, but that's what he's basically saying is if, if, you, if you don't have um, love one another and you are in denial about Jesus as God's son, that's the spirit of the Antichrist. And that's what the Gnostics is. They didn't really know Jesus because they, didn't, uh, they weren't loving, and that was John's John's argument is that you don't really know him because you're not really loving. And that takes us to our fourth key this evening, which is moving from loving one another to literally living in love. He says this in verses 15 and 16 and beyond. You see, there's this natural progression from believing that God is love 
to living in love. In other words, acting it out, living a life of love. So if, if we want to truly, fully love others, if we want to love as God loves, the answer to that is to believe in Jesus as the Son of God, to live in God's love, and God's love will then live in you. You may have heard some people ask, well, you know, non-Christians say, well, where is God? You know, if, if I could just see God, if I could see God, then, then I'd believe in God. Then I'd follow him. You know, because we believe that God is present in the world today primarily through the love, as John says here, the love of Christ followers one for another, for others. But we know that God himself, God is pure spirit, is not visible. You can't see God. And so when people ask the question, it's like, well, where is God? I just want to see God. They're asking for the ability to see God directly, and that's not possible. But we are available. See, many non-Christians claim that they want to see God, and they would believe if they could see God, see God directly. But again, because God is pure spirit, they can't, but they can see God indirectly through the love we have for others in and through us through the love we express for one another as we live here on this earth, as we live in love, our love for one another as Christians should be the greatest single expression of God's reality. You may be familiar with that song. It's an older chorus. They will know we are Christians by our love. There's a profound message in that. Sometimes we, we even ask or we look around and we say, not necessarily of living water, but we say, well, why isn't the church growing? The easy answer to that is to say, well, God's not moving. But it's also possible that we're not loving. Matter of fact, there was um, a practice that was um, done in the, in the, throughout the Roman Empire. And uh, the, the church from the time of uh, the disciples, um, you know, the middle of the first century up until the time of Constantine in the early fourth century, experienced almost certainly its most phenomenal and consistent growth. It grew from just a handful of believers when Jesus died and was resurrected to about 5% of the Roman Empire, over 5 million people by the time that Constantine was emperor in the early 4th century. And when you look at the, re there are a variety of reasons why that, in fact, was the case. But one of the reasons that historians have, have argued that, that the church grew so rapidly is because there was a practice which was relatively common in the Roman, Roman Empire called exposure. And that was when, when a Roman couple had a child and uh, they couldn't afford to keep, for the ch keep the child, or particularly if the child was a girl, and there would be no doubt, they had to give the dowry and they wouldn't get a dowry, it was too expensive, they would literally take the child as an infant and they would just set it out in the elements on a stone fence or somewhere and to die, to be either exposed to the evidence to the cold or the heat or wild animals would come and take it and eat it and just the child would be dead because they literally couldn't afford it. And that was just a common practice. It was widely accepted. There weren't a lot of moral connotations. They weren't looked at as bad people, but it was just commonly done for people who could not, felt they could not afford to take care of that child. Well, guess what the Christians did? Christians would got, got a reputation for coming along and seeing these children. It was obvious that they were being exposed and they were just left there to die. And the Christians would adopt, would take them home and adopt them and raise them as their own as an incredible testimony of God's love and is one of the primary reasons why, why when they came to witnessing that, that God, God is a God of love, people understood what that was like because they could point to the fact that the Christians took in these unwanted babies and raised them as their own. That was truly loving as God loves and that's one reason the church grew because the church, early church demonstrated that love. It's a fantastic example. And in John, verse 20 of our text, John says that loving and serving humans, he says that's actually the easy part. Because he says loving and serving God, that's the harder part because God's invisible. 
And he says, don't talk to me about, about doing the hard, that you think you can do the harder part, love God, when you can't even love your brother or sister in front of you. If you can't do the easier part, it's kind of absurd to claim that you can do the more difficult part. He's very blunt about it. And he says, love for God and love for our brothers and sisters, they go together, they're inseparable. Matter of fact, Jesus even connects them together in Matthew 22. He's, he's asked, which is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, he com- combines Deuteronomy 6.4, love God, and Leviticus 19.18, love for others. You know, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now these two, love for God and love for others, they're not identical. But Jesus is saying they clearly are inseparable, and that's what John is reiterating here as well. I remember when I was a teenager, one Friday night, some friends of mine and I, we were riding around in our relatively, our smallish town and about the size of Albany, and we weren't troublemakers, but we just didn't have much to do. And we, I remember stopping at a petrol station, and one of the friends of mine that was in the car while we were in the petrol station was named Craig. And I think there were some people at the petrol station that needed some help of some kind. And so Craig turns to me, he knew I was a Christian, and he said, he said, Rich, why would you help those people? And I thought about it for a moment, I said, well, because I, I didn't know them, I'd never seen them before, because I love God. And he kind of smugly said, I'd help them because I love and I care about them. And he thought his answer was superior to mine. And he was smug because he, 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 he stated that's why he wasn't a Christian, because he didn't think my motivation uh, was sound. He said it was false, it was fake, it's just because I didn't really love people. And I'm sorry to say I didn't have much response for Craig that night. I kind of fumbled over the words. I didn't have a good answer. But I've thought a lot about that exchange since then. And I've come to the realization that, that as, as noble as it sounds for, in Craig's motivation, human-to-human love like Craig was advocating with no divine motivation, it's inevitably going to fail. It's inevitably going to break down at some point because it's based on the recipient being worthy of that love, that need love, or it's based on some need in me to, to, to feel good about myself by doing something good for other people. Human-to-human love, the motivation for that, when we're motivated by God's love, that's the reproduction of God's love, and that will be lasting. That's what I should have said to Craig at the time, but it just didn't come to me, I guess. I didn't know enough. But I believe that's really true, and that's that's the gift love. That's the giving love. It's the other love. Whereas human-to-human love, that's not motivated by divine motivation. It's really about me at some point. It's about human-to-human love, not not divine-to-human love. And as John says in verse 19, he says, we love because he first loved us. John's really bringing it home here. He says the only reason we even know what love is is because God is love and God, because of God and his love for us. In other words, without God, there would be no love. I actually find this quite interesting and not to get off track on an apologetic note, but I'm always amazed by this where, where atheists claim that, oh, you know, still believe in love because when you think about it, there's no, evolution is the only other possible, you know, option on the table for how organic life got here. Other, either God created it or we have evolution. There's, that's really it. And in, in, in John is saying, we, we love because he froze loved us. In other words, God, love originates and comes from God. But in evolution, there's no reason for evolution to produce love. Because evolution is a, is a product of time, chance, random chance, and survival of the fittest which is all about the self. 
It's all about the self um, and survival of the fittest and doing what benefits me at the expense of somebody else. But love is other-oriented. Love is sacrificial. Love is sacrifices the good of myself for the other, and evolution would never honor that. It would ne never get passed on. You cannot, and some people try to do it, but I don't believe it's possible. You cannot explain the existence of love if evolution is true. It's one of, to me, one of the greatest evidences that God exists and evolution is false is just the simple existence of love, something that everybody wants and desires and craves. We love because he first loved, loved, because he first loved us. And John says as well in verse 17 that we should live like Jesus and the way we do this is in verse 18, not in fear. And because we don't fear God, we're free to love God in verse 19. Matter of fact, I'm amazed by this whole concept of fear. It's worth a sermon in itself. Is that fear is in us because of our old nature and has to be driven out by love. You know, we often think that if we ask, well, what's the opposite of love? We think, well, love and hate, they kind of, you know, the opposites. I actually don't believe that's true. I think the opposite of love is fear. We hate what we fear, but the opposite of love is actually fear. And John kind of points to this. He says, if you're afraid of God um, and you, you, you're, you keep your distance from God and won't go near God, but when that fear is overcome, you're drawn to God. Uh, and so, and, and you're able to accept the love of God and embrace the love of God that God has for you. So perfect love casts out fear. It drives out that fear. God's love comes first before ours and it inspires our love. And our love for God then expresses and demonstrates, is demonstrated in our love for others. So when we love others through God's love, that's when God's love is made complete in us. And our love for God is also made complete. Now, admittedly, love, loving others is not easy. You may have heard the popular expression, love means never having to say you're sorry. How many of you have ever heard that? How many of you would, well, I won't ask how many of you have ever said that to someone. But I actually don't think that's entirely true. Matter of fact, somebody else who doesn't believe it's true responded, actually, love means having to say you're sorry every five minutes. Actually, I think both are overstatements and they're oversimplifications. Because love is neither on, that, neither, on neither extreme of that. I remember in a Bible college class many years ago, one of our, the professor asked us, he said, what's the definition of love? And so a, a vigorous discussion ensued about what could the possible definitions of love be. And we finally settled on as a class this definition, a one-word definition of love. That love is commitment. Love is commitment. And I've thought a lot about that since then. And I actually think it's pretty tough to improve on that. Because if you take any statement where, which includes the word love and you substitute in the word commitment for love, it actually expounds and it actually expands and it, and it, and it, and it enriches the meaning. Take John 3.16, which says, For God so loved the world, for God was so committed to the world that he gave his one and only Son. And, and, and it just falls in line. But if you take that same word commitment and try to insert it in Tina Turner's song, what's commitment have to do with it? What's commitment but a secondhand emotion, a sweet old-fashioned notion? It's clear that Tina Turner didn't really understand what she thought she was singing about. She thought she was singing about love, but she really wasn't. Matter of fact, my wife Tammy, when we were dating back in Bible college, we were getting more serious in our, our dating relationship and Tammy, in her infinite wisdom, she communicated to me a boundary, an expectation that she had. She said, don't tell me you love me unless in the very next sentence you're able to say, I will marry you. Because Tammy understood far better than I did at the time 
that love equals commitment. Because if you can't say you'll be committed to me in marriage, don't bother telling me you love me because it won't really mean anything. And how different relationships would be these days if everybody abided by that. This other love, this giving love, this love that imitates the Father, that reproduces the Father's love for us, that is commitment. Because God is committed to us and we need to be committed to others as well. Now there are lots of other aspects of this love and we're going to explore that over the next several weeks. But I just want to leave you with a couple of questions as we conclude from this. Who are you committed to? Who do you love? Who are you committed to? And how do they know that you're committed to them? And what do you do or what have you done to demonstrate that committed love, that commitment love to them? Would you join me in a word of prayer as we close? Father, we thank you so much for your great love for us. We know that we don't deserve it, but you give it to us anyway because you are committed to us. Thank you for sending Jesus to live among us and especially to die for us in our place as the supreme expression of your deep love for us. And now you call us to love others in imitation of your love for us to love them the way you love us. So help us, God, to reproduce your love in this way so that others will know that you're real and that you love them too. May people see Jesus, even if just a little bit, in our love for others and in our love for you. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. 